Hi and welcome back to Airfields of Dreams. I'm your host Hank Roush and uh, our first episode of this podcast will be Martinsburg, West Virginia which happens to be my home field. It's uh, I think officially known as Eastern West Virginia Regional Airport but everybody just calls it Martinsburg. Its identifiers are MRB, Mike Romeo Bravo. It's located in the very northern part of the Shenandoah Valley. If um, you go any farther, really, you're out of the Shenandoah Valley at that point if you cross the Potomac. It's surrounded by two ridges. Uh, One ridge is maybe uh, 10 miles to the west, and it's about 1,500 feet. And then there's another ridge, the Blue Ridge Mountains, yeah, maybe 15, 20 miles to the uh, east, and it's also uh, um, about 1,500, 2,000 feet. It's a very easy field to fly into. It's located in basically a flat basin. There's no obstructions whatsoever. Really, if you're heading south in the Shenandoah Valley, you could head at 1,000 AGL or whatever for a long ways before you came across any obstruction at all. Um, if you try to get out of the Shenandoah Valley, uh, particularly heading east, um, that's usually not a problem as long as the uh, ceiling is 2,000 feet or above MSL. Um, right around 2,000 feet, you can still make your way through the Blue Ridge uh, Mountains to the east. There's two gaps in the ridge. There's uh, where Route 7 crosses and where Route uh, 17 crosses a little bit south of there. And generally that's good to about 2,000 feet. Um, and really, if it's below that, you're really stuck inside the valley. But uh, you know, it'd have to be pretty low to be 2,000 feet. Anything above there, um, you know, you've really got no problem. So it's a real easy airfield to, to get in and out of, especially because it's got such a long runway. It's got a 8,800 foot runway running uh, east-west. It's uh, 2, 6, and 8. Uh, sadly, it used to have two runways used to have a north-south runway too which was great for crosswind it was uh, 5,000 feet however that uh, um, and we'll talk about it during the history the Air National Guard put paid to that when they brought in C5A galaxies they took away our crosswind runway uh, to make uh, um, room for uh, a 200 foot tower which is there now right right where uh, um, you know the the northern part of the the east-west the north-south runway so that's a bit sad if um, you run into any kind of severe crosswind so and don't feel like landing at Martinsburg you're not totally out of luck. Uh, Winchester is 18 miles to the south and Winchester has a runway I think it's 3-3 right now. It has enough uh, northern component that will usually get you in if you don't feel safe about landing at Martinsburg and then if all else fails you've got Hagerstown to the north which is uh, got a east-west and a north-south runway and I'll get you in no matter what so you've got options if the uh, you don't feel safe with the crosswind but the because uh, the, the runway is so long you know it's 150 feet wide it's really not an, uh, even in, in, in quite turbulence or quite uh, significant um, wind shear or uh, crosswinds it's, it's pretty easy to land there at Martinsburg. Finishing up with the numbers, runway 26 has a thousand foot displaced threshold. 
Field elevation is 560 feet, so it's uh, very low. Even on a very hot summer day, the density altitude is going to be, you know, maybe what a couple thousand feet. So it's it's really a, all in all, it's a very easy uh, um, airfield to land into. It's plenty of runway, uh, plenty wide, uh, low, no obstructions anywhere that you're going to have a, a problem with, and really. Um, it's kind of runway kind of feel when you're coming in maybe late at night and you're you're very tired and you just want to set it down you don't really have to think about landing too much so in that respect it's um really nice uh, uh, airfield to be based out of now for the history of, of martinsburg it's got a, a very long history it starts back in uh, 1922 when the berkeley aviation club selected shepherd field as a landing site for the u.s army Back then, the uh, Army uh, uh, had a series of flyways across the nation. They, they were very physical in nature. There, there were uh, arrows on the ground. There were um, light beacons to show the way at night. There were uh, the name of the city along the route was painted um, in certain uh, high letters on, on buildings so aviators from the sky could tell where they are. There, there weren't any radio uh, aids navigation back then. It was all done uh, very visually and very physically. And part of the flyway was to have these uh, airfields along the way in case uh, the aviators got into problems. Uh, the Berkeley Air Club had two fields, or was associated with two fields rather, uh, farther north in uh, um, Martinsburg, but they weren't considered, um, you know, uh, suitable for the army. So the Shepherd family donated roughly a thousand acres of their land to the U.S. Army to create, or to Berkeley Aero Club rather, to create this uh, uh, this field. And it was commissioned in 1923, and the army was using it. There was a flyway from Bowling Air Force Base in Washington D.C. to Martinsburg from there to Cumberland, Maryland, and from there to Moundsville, and from there to Dayton. So the whole route was Bowling to Dayton, and Martinsburg was established as a uh, intermediate field along that flyway. And so all through the 20s and into the 30s, the U.S. Army used this field. And there were all kinds of military era um, aircraft of the era landing. It was still a grass field. Um, uh, in addition to the Army, there were civilians using it as well. As a matter of fact, Amelia Earhart um, is said to have been a member of Berkeley Aero Club, and uh, she's, uh, there's a signed card with her signature on it uh, you know, showing that she's a member. And she, she landed, I think, some, sometime in 1923, so that's a bit of trivia. So into the 30s, uh, uh, in 1934, the East-West runway was paved. It was uh, 2,300 feet uh, long. It was paved by the uh, Works uh, WPA as part of the Depression Era Works Projects uh, Administration. And then uh, they also established a crossing run runway north-south, which, as I said on the uh, previous part of this broadcast, is a bit sad. We, we lost our north-south runway. Um, so that was the 30s. Uh, into the 40s, the Civil Air Patrol uh, uh, basically took up shop there. The Civil Air Patrol was a real critical part of the United States' response to the U-boat menace on the eastern seaboard. There just were not enough eyeballs and planes within the military to look where the uh, the U-boats were. And for a period, about the first uh, year of the war, the U-boat menace really ran roughshod on the eastern seaboard and sank a lot of, of tankers. And one of the things that put a stop 
to uh, you know the uh, the slaughter was uh, the Silver Air Patrol, which would fly planes out into the Atlantic and at a minimum spot the U-boats. Uh, sometimes they would um, make kind of uh, fake dives to them, like as if they had a bomb, or if they had radios, they would radio in the position of the uh, the U-boat. Um, but they were very significant to to to, uh, to uh, quelling the uh, the U-boat menace on the eastern seaboard. They were up and down the, the east east coast. In the 1940s, the east-west runway was expanded to 5,000 feet, and part of the reason was uh, what is now the um, Martinsburg VA Center was back then the uh, U.S. Army, uh, one of their main hospitals, and it was to provide a runway to allow uh, you know, basically patients to be landed and, and brought to that hospital, which is only about three miles away. It's right off the approach for uh, runway 26. The 1950s saw a lot of changes to Martinsburg Airfield, the first of which, probably the, the main one, was the West Virginia Air National Guard moved in in the middle 50s. And it started out with P-51 Mustang fighters and then quickly moved to F-86 jets. So those were the, uh, the first uh, of the uh, Air National Guard that were here. And to this day, the Air National Guard has started out fairly small. Um, but uh, basically covers the entire north half of the field. If you land on it today, you'll see just an entire ramp filled with C-17s. The Air National Guard has gone from P-51s and F-86s. Uh, about uh, 1961, they shifted over to uh, cargo planes to C-19, 119, uh, flying boxcars, uh, followed quickly by uh, Lockheed uh, Super Constellations. And then by C-130s, the various, uh, um, you know, increasingly uh, uh, later models. When I got to the field in 1994, they were flying the C-130 hotels. I, I think they were, and they were. Um, it was truly just just magnificent to watch those planes. Uh, uh, back then, we had uh, both runways uh, in the uh, C-130s. Would often do it be kind of like an air show. They, they do these low passes and then drop things out of the back of the C-130 by means of a parachute. They fly very low and the parachute would just suck a, a pallet worse than good out maybe 20 or 30 feet above the field and, and drop it there and they'd, they'd fly off. Uh, there was an what they called an attack strip that was uh, very short and very narrow. It was kind of like a standard J strip. It was 3,000 feet parallel to 2.6 and the C-130s would regularly practice landing on this little GA looking strip um, and, and not on the, the big runway to, to uh, you know, hone their, their, their small strip uh, skills. So C-130s were a lot of fun. It was uh, kind of a real shame to see the C-130s go for two reasons. One, you know, they were good neighbors and they're, they were quite, uh, quite fantastic to watch. But uh, two, as I said in the earlier part of this broadcast, we lost our crossfield, uh, our crosswind runway when the C-130s left and they brought in C-5A galaxies. C-5A galaxies are just these behemoths. They're, you know, one or two of the, the largest planes on the planet. They're just insanely large planes. They had to build a new tower to accommodate the C-5s and where they planned on putting the tower, where they ended up putting it, rather, um, conflicted with the the north-south 5,000-foot runway. So we lost that, which is a real shame. But like I said in the uh, the numbers part of this uh, 
wasn't the end of the world. Um, you know, we still got a good uh, crosswind uh, reliever airport to an extent at Winchester to the south and then definitely to Hagerstown north. But still, um, that was a, a bit of a shame. But C C5s were, were nice to uh, um, to watch come in. They, they didn't fly a whole lot. I, I think they were so darn expensive that I think they, they flew them when they needed to, but um, they, they, they sat on the ramp a good deal. And I'd say about 10 years ago, the C5s moved out and they were replaced by C-17s, which we have right now as um, C-17 planes, which are our new strategic airlift that replaces C-5s. And it's it, they're quite a stunning sight. It, usually when you fly in, land on 2-6, you'll see, you know, about a dozen of them sitting off to your right, right there, just 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 ready to go, just in in, in rows. It's quite a, a dramatic sight for uh, you know if you're used to flying into a, a GA field. So that's the, uh, the history of uh, the West Virginia Air National Guard on the field. In parallel with that, there was a lot of commercial activity. Starting in the 50s, we had a few uh, kind of uh, a small regional airlines flying out of Martinsburg. They were flying to uh, Pittsburgh and to D.C., uh, things like that. And those operated from the 50s into the 70s and were basically all bought up and then... Uh, um, or, or folded and, and stopped service serving uh, Martinsburg in the 70s. If you go into the FBO in the first part, kind of the foyer of the, the main building, there is a, a kind of a mock-up or uh, reproduction of the original, you know, operations building that was built in 1920, 1926. That's gone. Where that FBO sits, uh, I guess since 1956, uh, they had it up until about uh, 2000, was a little brick, uh, one-story one several room establishment that used to be the, the uh, terminal operations for these airlines that were operating out of uh, Martinsburg. It also had a flight service station, it had a little cafe in it, and when I got here in 94, the uh, um, they were called Professional Pilots Incorporated, PPI. The FBO then was operating out of that little brick building. And that brick building was a piece of history in itself. Um, you know, one, one part of it had a, a little kind of a diner out of the 30s there, so to speak, and they, they'd serve food there. And the other part of it um, was a flight service station where you would go in and get your weather brief. You didn't have to call an 800 number or look on a computer. You just walk in and talk to the the briefer and, and sit down with them and he'd show you the charts and show you what your weather would be on the on the flight. So that's all gone. Then they they tore that brick building down. It's been replaced by the uh, the FBO now, which is just uh, just just beautiful. Um, you know the 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 old building was um, you know showing a lot of uh, worse for the wear for its age, but it was a real part of history. The other part of history I'd like to tell you about is. We had not one but two fairly large-scale aircraft manufacturing enterprises on the field. The first was something called Sinoswearingen in the mid-90s. Uh, Sinoswearingen built a kind of a an also ran to a Cessna Citation. It was a, a personal uh, business jet set. Uh, I think seven people. And that was the plan. Um, there was a huge facility, a lot of you know opening works and everything in the 90s. 
I don't think they ever actually, if, if they did actually build a plane at that facility, I, I can't say I saw it, but that, long, long story short, that, um, that, uh, that plant folded uh, in, in the 90s. Uh, the hangar's still there, and it's, it's rented out to various enterprises, but Sinosaur Engine, you know, the, the whole plan was to build uh, business jets there. That, that never really got off the ground. The, the second one that did get off the ground to an extent, but ended up folding, was Tiger Aircraft. They bought the uh, the Grumman um, Tiger uh, plans in license and actually built for a number of years in uh, the first decade of the century, built, I think the total number was 51 Tiger Aircraft. And that was, you know, again, a real bright spot, but uh, for economic reasons and things, uh, that folded as well. And, and right now, currently, the current FBO occupies a lot of the hangars that were built by by Tiger there. Um, yeah, it's a bit sad. You know, we're going to have a huge manufacturing presence on the on the field, but uh, it, it was not meant to. That brings us to today. And uh, right now, the FBO, the old FBO, was purchased by the Airport Authority and now is run as Fly MRB, and it's doing um, really just a fantastic job of, of running the uh, the FBO, the I think the the biggest thing they did that I think all the the local pilots appreciated was got in a self-service uh, gas pump. Uh, before um, we we didn't have it, we just had the uh, they, they would come and, and fuel you up. So that 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 really getting that self-service pump really put us in um, you know competition league with all the other fields around us, and 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 that plus having the the restaurants start up again on the second floor of the FBO. Um, really were the two things I think that really uh, jump kicked all the, uh, the the recent general aviation activity that's occurred here now. And that concludes the history of Martinsburg. And now for the pirate. Uh, like I said before, uh, Martinsburg is very easy to get into and out of. For one, it's got a tower. There isn't a whole lot of traffic, but what traffic there is, it gets separated pretty well by a tower. Even on a Saturday, I would be surprised. Uh, having three people in the pattern is a lot. Um, we're getting a lot of traffic now from uh, students from uh, Leesburg and also Winchester that come up and shoot touch and goes. But still, it's it's nothing like compared to Leesburg or uh, uh, Winchester, especially Frederick, uh, for example. If you've ever been up there and, and seen the kind of the flying circus that goes on in Frederick on a, any any given Saturday. It's on a flat plane with no obstructions. There's there's nothing to get in your way. There's no tricky things getting in. And uh, last but not least, it's got a 8,800 foot runway. It's 150 foot wide. I mean, if you can't land there, you really can't land anywhere. It's it's really uh, it's really easy to get in and out of like that. As far as the layout, uh, the north field is all the Air National Guard. Uh, you wouldn't be taxiing over there. The only thing on the north side, on the north east corner, is Howard Aircraft, very good maintenance facility. Um, you might be taxiing over there. Uh, it tucked away in the, the corner there for the, uh, um, you know, if you have an annual or something like that. But everything else is uh, is Air National Guard to the north side. You won't be going there. On the south side, it's it's kind of funny. The FBO split. The the main part of the FBO is on the southeast corner. That's where the, the big uh, terminal building is. It's where the uh, uh, fuel pumps are. It's where the restaurant are. It's it's basically where you go. Um, 
the FBO has uh, all those hangars that were built by uh, Sinus Wurringen and uh, by Tiger are on the southwest side of the field. Um, and a lot of them are being used for other things now, but one of them has been uh, kind of adopted by the uh, um, the FBO. And they've got their admin building over there. Um, that's also where the uh, the museum is. We're going to have an interview with Bart Rogers here in a bit who, who runs the museum. And uh, if you wanted to get there, you, you taxi over to the uh, um, southwest side of the field. But otherwise, it's southeast for the fuel pump and everything like like that. Okay, gas. Um, I'm not going to give a number because you know numbers change a whole lot. But uh, I was thinking of the way we're going to categorize gas prices for this uh, show is uh, you know low, medium, and high for the area, and you know it's going to vary. Obviously, well, it might be low in one place. Um, that same price might be medium somewhere else, just because it's it's lower prices altogether. So low, medium, high, low, you know, you go out of your way, maybe 10 miles, set down and gas up there. It's a good deal. Medium, you know, it's, it's, it's you won't feel like you got ripped off. Um, you wouldn't necessarily divert any distance, but if you stopped, you'd get, oh, it's a decent price, whatever. And high is, is just that high. Um, right now, if you ask me for the area, what the, the numbers are for those, I'd say, if you get anything below $5 a gallon, it's low in this area. Uh, anything like five dollars up to five fifty, five fifteen change, whatever is kind of medium in the ballpark. And then uh, anything above, you know, five seventy-five, five fifty, whatever. That's uh, I'll consider high for Martinsburg. The uh, the self-service is is medium. You know, you you won't feel like you get ripped off. It's not. It's commensurate with uh, all the other fields in the area. I mean, you know, a dime or a quarter difference gallon, you know, is, is roughly comparable. I'd say. And the gas pump's really used to used to, um, you know, it's really obvious. You, you turn on the, uh, you know, run your credit card, put the riding strap, uh, and uh, turn on the uh, the pump, and and you hear it click on. It's it's real real obvious. Let's see other other factors about uh, uh, Martinsburg that uh, you care about as a pilot. Uh, there's no crew car, and uh, it is actually kind of far away from town. It's at least you want to walk into anything you consider town to be a good three or four mile walk. Um, so that's kind of a bad thing. There's no real where, uh, place to walk to from the field. The closest place, if you absolutely didn't have a set of fields, a set of wheels, and nobody could help you out, um, you know, just catch a ride or something. Um, if you taxied over to the southwest part where, like I said, the admin part, of the uh, FBO is from there it's only about a mile to walk over to the sheets if you want to grab something other than that if you were stuck on the south east side where the gas pumps are be a good two or three miles to walk to anything a little bit a little bit farther than, than most people uh, let's see being able to crash there uh, daytime yes uh, nighttime uh, no it, it's not open at night um, there is a nice uh, pilot lounge in there as lazy boys, you know, for, you know, crews. Uh, tie down is $10 uh, a night. It's weighed with uh, for the first night with a fuel purpose purchase. It's kind of standard around there. Uh, it does have Wi-Fi. It's easy to use. And uh, they do have a, a uh, enterprise their own car on the, uh, on the field right there. So to sum it up, the vibe. So the way I kind of rate the vibe is kind of on a spectrum from on one end you've got you know the uh, the old FBOs that we're kind of used to it's a bunch of 
you know, dog-eared uh, airplane magazines from 1978 or something, and there's a bunch of, uh, you know, um, shirt tails hanging on the on the wall from people that have soloed, and there might be some, uh, you know, coffee, you know, that's kind of burned to the burner in the corner right there, and, you know, it's just your typical kind of old sleepy FBO. I, I would call that a one, and I'll call like a 10, maybe uh, a signature or something like that, where... You go in and you smell like freshly baked uh, uh, chocolate cookies, and they've got a popcorn machine, and they've got all the bells and whistles. And there's, you know, maybe a young lady behind the uh, counter. It's really, you know, decked out to the nines, you know, to, to help you with your seven dollar gallon gas, you know, that kind of thing. I'll put uh, Martinsburg kind of a five in the middle. It's um, it's definitely not a sleepy hollow like an old, uh, um, you know, pilot hangout FBO. Um, but it's definitely not kind of a real high-end signature place. It, it strikes nice balance. It, it, it's light and airy. You walk in, there's there's nice furniture, but there's a, a couple quiet rooms. You know, if you need to crash, you can. Um, the guys here um, behind the desk are, are the guys that, that you know pump the gas and, and all that. There, um, it's it's a it's a very nice vibe at the, at Martinsburg. So yeah, I, I put it right in the middle. So that's the pie rep. Next up will be what I think will be the favorite part of this show, the interview with the local pilot. And I've got here Mr. Bart Rogers, who is the, uh, by far and away the best person, i got to tell you, Bart, I could ever imagine to interview for Martinsburg. I mean, you, uh, you run the history program here, um, and I've known you ever since I started flying here, and I know you here a long time before me. So uh, thank you very much for uh, joining us. And... Uh, uh, yeah, um, tell me something about yourself. Uh, um, how, how long have you been uh, um, flying, and how long have you been at this field? Well, Hank, it's great to be here. Uh, I've been flying uh, 50, I think 54 years, maybe 55 now. And uh, I've been at this field since uh, 1980s. Uh, Mid-80s, I think, I showed up here at, uh, at Shepherd Field. 55 years flying. That's so impressive. And you started out in the service, right, and flying I P-3s? Did. I started out in the Navy. Went to Navy flight training in August of 1965 down to Pensacola and uh, went through the NAVCAD program, Naval Aviation Cadet. And it was a year, roughly a year and a half. I had my my uh, commission in wings a year and four months after I started. And what what planes did you start out with? Started out in the T-34 and went to basic. Uh, that was primary. Basic was the T-28. And uh, after the T-28, actually... Uh, basic and then care calls, carrier qualifications, also in the T-28. And at that point, you got your orders to either helicopters, jets, or or multi-engine. Uh, I got multi-engine. Went to Corpus Christi, flew the S-2, TS-2F, uh, which was a twin-engine Grumman uh, Shipborne uh, predecessor of an ETC Hawkeye, or actually the predecessor to the 
S3. Okay. Uh, the S3 took over its mission. So, so that, that's surprising, I, and, and that's something I didn't realize. So you, carify, you qualified on carriers. Everyone qualifies on carriers then, even if you're going to go rotor or even if you're going to go uh, multi. We did then. I'm not sure what they do now. Uh, I think it's changed quite a bit. But every naval aviator had to carrier qualify. Yeah. What made you pick uh, multi? Is it, was that your choice, or is it? Uh, actually, your first uh, your first new direction was after primary, and at, at pri after primary, you either went on in uh, fixed wing uh, reciprocating engines, or you went to jets, and the jet program was very selective. Uh, you had to have your the top grades to get into jets, and I didn't have those. I was scraping through like uh, so off I went to multi-engine, to led the multi-engine training, but the multi-engine, you actually got that after you got did your care calls. You either went to multi-engine or helicopters, or they could run you back into jets if you, if they wanted to, but very few people went to jets. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was really hit and miss because, uh, you know, multi-engine was, you could have gone many directions. I ended up in P3s. Uh, actually, I ended up in uh, P5s, which was a seaplane. My orders were to a squadron that was going to fly, that were flying P5s. And I actually went to the replacement air group in San Diego to learn the P5 systems and to uh, check out in the P5 before you actually went to the squadron. However, I was in P5 uh, system school, and they said, uh, how many of you are going to VP50? And a couple of us indicated we were, and they said, you will never get into a P5. Your squadron is transitioning to P3s. And uh, my question was, why, why am I here in P5 system school? Because it's on the schedule. <laughs> That's a military. <laughs> so we had a great, and system school back then was like a week, which was uh, phenomenal because uh, eventually I went to P5 system or P3 systems and transition, and uh, it was months. <laughs> I believe. Oh, sure, of course. Yeah. I can't yeah. believe they did much anything in a week on a P5. Yeah. Yeah, the P5 system, the P5 manual was about an inch and a half thick, and uh, the P3 manual is that blue blue one right over there that's uh, five and a half or six inches thick. Sure. And it was broken down into two sections that size. Oh. <laughs> I got to tell you, I was always uh, jealous of the P3 uh, pilots. You know, we talked to them on the radio. We, you know, me being in submarines and. Uh, you know, we'd be out there for months, and we've talked to these guys, and you knew, like, six hours from there, they'd be back on the beach at the Oak Club, <laughs> you know, and you're getting per diem, too. Yeah. I, was, I was so jealous of that. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. The P-3 was a uh, wonderful airplane, and uh, the duty was very pleasant. You were always on the ground at night someplace, or I mean, you flew a lot at night, but you were always 
in a bed someplace. Uh, <laughs> and they're amazing machines. They could stay aloft for oh, yeah, they were an incredible amount of time. 11 to 12 hours you could stay aloft with them. Uh, I think my longest flight was 11.7 or something. So what, what brought you to Martinsburg? Was that after you got left the service? Well, as I said, I went through a program in the Navy called the NAVCAD program, which is the Naval Aviation Cadet program. You had to have 60 hours of college and pass uh, an exam and then, of course, the physicals and all that. So I applied for that program and ended up getting it. I always thought, I don't know how, <laughs> but, but I made it into the program. And uh, so when I, grad when I finished my first uh, five years of active duty, I uh, decided to get out and go to the airlines. And of course, the airlines were not hiring. And I came back to West Virginia uh, uh, and decided, well, I'll stay in the reserves, which were at Patuxent River, and uh, go back to college. So I went back to college and I came to Shepherd because it was close to the reserves. I could still get in-state tuition. Of course, the GI Bill paid for my for my education then anyway. Uh, but I would drill at Patuxent River and go to college. And After two years, I got my degree, and that's how I got here. And I liked the area, so we stayed here, and the airline jobs never came to fruition because it was just a horrible... Well, in 1970, when I got out of the Navy, the airlines were in very bad shape. To get hired, you, it was tough. And they had deregulation at some point around. Well, that, I went they? back. To, like I said, I went back to college, and during that time, I was we were commuting to Pax River, and uh, I knew a lot of guys were who were airlines who were all laid off, and they were the reserves supported a lot of us in, <laughs> during those days. Uh, uh, but they were always talking about deregulation, you know, in the airlines. They had to have deregulation. <laughs> but you kept current, though, in the reserves, and you're I still flying P3s there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, as I said, I was, I did that for seven years, and then I, as I said, I got stupid and, and uh, quit the reserves because I had other things I wanted to take care of, like building my house. And, and by then, the reserves were becoming uh, integrated more into the active duty uh, stuff. So you really couldn't stay current uh, once a month. You almost had to go down two times a month. And uh, it just got to where I didn't want to do it anymore. It's a huge commitment, sure, sure. Plus getting called for, for active duty for training, I'll, right. I'll bet. Right. So uh, anyway, I gave that up and uh, did a variety of things, taught school, and, Ended up going to work for the National Park Service and did that for 20, 20 some years. And then but you were flying. Now, when did you get your Stinson? You've got to talk about well, your, your Stinson. Well, Stinson, how did that come about? I ended up joining the Civil Air Patrol here at Martinsburg in the, in the mid-'80s. That's when I really started being out here more often. My daughter wanted to join the Civil Air Patrol, and I thought, well, if she's going to join, I'll join because I have to come over here anyway. 
So I got into the CAP, and then after about a month, she didn't didn't like the CAP any longer. She left, and I was there for another 20 years. And uh, so I flew a Cessna 172 for currency. Uh, I ended up getting a uh, a uh, Cherokee 140 that I flew for years, and. Uh, then uh, at a CAP meeting, a uh, one of my, the ladies in the in the unit came to me and said, "Hey, here's a phone number. This fellow's got an airplane to sell." And I told him I knew just who would want it. You call him. Well, I called the fellow. I said, "Well, I thought to myself, I can't even afford a 140, uh, you know. Uh, so I'm. This is. I don't need another airplane." But of course, I had to go look at it, and uh, it was sitting in a trailer court with the wings off, and in rather disheveled condition. And of course, that sort of thing always attracted me, and I got it for a fairly decent price. Uh, and called my brother, who uh, is a A and P, and said, "Would you like to have half of this?" And he said, "Sure." So we started. We tore it all apart. And, Rebuilt it, and, and it's an actual warbird. Bird, you're well, we found me. that you, out uh, after the fact. Uh, we were trying to rebuild the logs, so we wrote to the FAA and got the uh, the uh, 337s that were sent in on the airplane throughout its life, and uh, you could use that to rebuild the, the time and. Uh, was it based out of Martinsburg, or do you know it where? It was based out of Martinsburg then, but when we got to 337s and looked through them, there was a, an accident with the airplane in 1942, and it was flying out of Rehoboth, Delaware. And in, the, in the accident report and, and a later sale, the airplane was to be used by the CAP as a target towing plane at uh, Langley Field. Once it was sold, that was the direction, you know, the War Production Board oversaw everything. And they said, well, once, once it's sold, it's got to be loaned to the CAP and uh, used as a target towing airplane. So I, we decided, well, we'll try, to, we'll try to restore it to that era because we had ties with the CAP. And, uh, when I finally ended up calling the, uh, getting a hold of the CAP historian, uh, he said, well, you know, more important than the uh, target towing, this was also used for the Coastal Patrol. And it flew out of, uh, and then, then everything kind of came together because in the 337s you saw in, in March, uh, they put a HF radio back in the back end of it. Wow. And a, uh, real antenna. How far would they go off the coast? Well, they'd only go off 40 miles, but they... It's they, pretty far. Uh, it's a long ways in a single-engine airplane. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's pretty far. And uh, so the, the airplane was, we saw that it was used for coastal patrol, so we started going toward that direction. But it's actually, we found the squadron that it was assigned to in, uh, in, the, in, the, in Langley, and that was uh, tow target 13. 
I got their history, but it never really showed up. As, but they did give credit to the CAP and their their views. But you've answered one question that's always kind of niggled at me, Bart. That um, you know, I, I love the museum over in the front of the FBI. I always read that, and there's that part about the uh, Martinsburg being a CAP field. In my little brain, I'm thinking, well, we're a little bit far from the ocean. So, oh, yeah. well, every 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 airport on the East Coast, you couldn't fly unless you were in the CAP, basically. Oh. So the CAP became popular when flying was uh, on the East Coast. Fly, oh. Flying was out, and. Uh, if you wanted to fly, you almost had to be in the CAP to get to fly. But they didn't do missions from Martinsburg. They, they would deploy to like Rehoboth or something? Or? Well, people out of squadrons would go to Rehoboth. Okay. Rehoboth was an established uh, coastal patrol base, CAP base. And uh, there were quite a few of them. All up, uh, there was one at, uh, up in New York and uh, Atlantic City, Rehoboth. Uh, Parkinsley, Virginia, and down on the coast in Florida, clear around to Louisiana, Texas. And I was reading in in your in the, your your museum there. You know, that I was reading that some of them actually stopped U-boats from conducting attacks. Right? They they make uh, yeah. mock dives at them or something. Yeah, yeah, and yeah scare them off. There's history of that. Uh, there used to CAP used to claim actually sinking a U-boat. Uh, but recent research indicates that, that they bombed one and it left some bubbles, and, but they never could confirm that they had gotten it. So they pretty much decided that they have not so, sunk the... Uh, so that's what really kept GA alive in the in the 40s here, I guess, being oh, yeah. CAP yeah. then. Because just like you said, nobody else was flying, you know, you could just... Well, Martinsburg itself uh, became a training base for uh, the Army and the Navy. Uh, it was a civilian operation that uh, had instructors. And they had like T-6s, I guess? No, or? they didn't. Uh, they did just basic primary training. They would go elsewhere for larger airplanes. Oh, like Stearman or PT-19 yeah, yeah. stuff? They, they, they just did... Uh, well, I'm not sure what light aircraft they were using. They're probably Cubs. Well, yeah, they were Cubs because I've got I've got some pages out of a fellow's logbook uh, who taught here, and uh, he, he was doing all training in Cubs. One of the things I'm most intrigued about um, your history exhibit there is uh, the little uh, airlines that that came here, I guess, in the in the 50s, uh, Central Lake and uh, yeah, what was Lake, it, uh, U.S. Air or the Lake Central. Uh, actually, uh, the first the first airline, or such as it was, air operation was uh, Tri-State. I was just reading a thing on that someplace today. Uh, they had a Blanca that they came in here with, and they were flying to Baltimore, across West Virginia, Clarksburg, Parkersburg, Charleston. Not sure how long it lasted, but Tri-State. Uh, then got bought out by uh, uh, DuPont, I forget his first name, and he renamed it All-American Aviation. But they were 
they were doing the airmail pickups, snatching the mail from the ground, and then that evolution was defunded by the government, and they gave All American a route, a passenger route, from National to Cumberland or to Martinsburg to Cumberland to Pittsburgh, and they eventually. All American ended up at their headquarters at Allegheny County, and uh, they changed their name to Allegheny Airlines. And the uh, I, I think the one thing I'm, I'm most intrigued by is was that little brick uh, building that when I got here in '94 it was still here, and we had the flight service on one end, and we had kind of like a cafe on the other end, yeah. and and uh, PPI was operating. Then they were the FBO then. Yeah. But but that apparently, according to your history thing, that, that, that was the uh, the airline terminal. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was. Matter of fact, when it was torn down, uh, someplace I've got a picture or two, I hope, somewhere. <laughs> uh, they, uh, they were taking the stuff off the wall, and there was, there was a schedule, a route thing, paint, painting on the wall of a I don't think it was Lake Central. I think it was Piedmont at that time. Uh, I can remember flying through here on, on a DC-3. Matter of fact, on my way to the Navy, I flew through Martinsburg <laughs> in a DC-3 down to, down to National. Well, I was reading some other history um, things that uh, I guess one of the reasons they lengthened the, the main east-west runway was because that was supporting the what what is now the VA center right. was then the Army Hospital, right. and so they they lengthened it so they could I guess fly uh, um, uh, people being treated at the hospital you know right, right in here. Right. Wow. That's also when the lighting system came into use. And, uh, the runway was lengthened, and the, and the crosswind runway, which of course is now gone, <laughs> uh, was put in at that time too. And then the uh, I guess in the mid fifties the Air National the uh, Air National Guard came, but they they were P fifty ones. Right, and they came around fifty seven I think, uh, and they had a squadron of P fifty ones. They also kept they had a T they had some T twenty eights. They had uh, uh, some HU sixteens, <laughs> and a Beach eighteen, some L L threes or fours. Uh, that must have been something uh, to see. Yeah. And then uh, it looks like about the 60s, they transitioned over to the flying boxcar. So they went to like a, a cargo role, I guess, and yeah. super connies, I guess. It, it went yeah, they were in C-119s for a while, then they transitioned to constellations. And uh, see, wait a minute, no, before constellations. See, how, how did that go? They had... Uh, they got F-86s for a while. I think that was... Hmm. That would have been a tactical squadron then, I guess. Yeah, right? yeah. That was after the... I think that was after the P-51s, uh, the 121, then the 130, then the C-5, now the C-17. Well, C-130s, I remember very well. They, they were here when I got there, and uh, yeah. it was like an air show. It was amazing, those, those machines. Yeah. Well, that's a good segue, Bart. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, we talked about maybe I, I could help you out a little bit with the uh, the history, but uh, um, 
you're you're like the resident knowledge of this field for one, and you've got we're sitting in the like the once in future museum here of uh, of all these uh, books. Well, uh, well, I, I let me get, get my sign. I know we can't show. It. Here's uh, here's what this place is called. Oh, nice, Bart Rogers Shepherd Field Aviation Library and Archive. Oh, and I recognize the uh, and I, insignia too. Yeah, yeah, that's my Stinson. That's a, yeah, and, it's a uh, cap. Yeah, I didn't ask for it to be done this way. It's rather overbearing. No, no, and, I can't uh, imagine a better name for it, Bart. I'm, that, I'm, that's I'm afraid. Beautiful. I'm afraid to put it up on the outside because there'll be a bunch of bullet holes in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just uh, on the on the podcast, it just dawned on me. I always put one picture for each and. The, you don't mind? I'm going to take a picture of that. That'll be uh, oh yeah. That'll be the uh, you'll have picture to move for it around it. wherever you want to take. Sure. It you get awful glares in here. So, what are your plans for um, you know the the history uh, museum here? Well, organization is the main plan. Uh, uh, you know, we have donated books uh, from many people, uh, but like I guess that's mostly concentrating on an aviation library. And we have some fascinating books. There are so many in uh, aviation. Uh, and my hope is to make it a lending library. And that, of course, requires getting them all in order and uh, labeling them and being able to track them and pass them out and get them back. I know uh, I'm, we probably all have the same experience of taking a book off of our shelf someplace and you open it up and you go, oh, Lord. I borrowed this from Charlie. Well, yeah, and there's stories. There's so many stories that uh, need to be told. And, uh, you know, I've got pictures and people and things that happened back in the old days uh, and fascinating things. Just recently, a, uh, an, an, a fellow called me, said that his father had been an instructor here in... Uh, during the war, and he had some things he'd like to donate. So he he, he lived down in Annapolis, and he he's his son's flying, and his son flew him up one day and met him over at the terminal. And they gave me a pile of things. Uh, they gave me his father's flying goggles that he used here, flying hat. And one of the other things that he gave me was a. Uh, are, are you familiar with a short snorter? I'm not. A short snorter was a, a dollar bill that you carried down back during the war, World War II. And if you uh, ran into a bunch of guys at the bar and you were all getting ready to have a drink, uh, everybody says, well, let me see your short snorter. So you'd have to take out your dollar bill and they would sign it. And if you didn't have a dollar bill, you had to buy the round of drinks. Kind of like a challenge coin exactly. a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, one of the things in this is, is a short snorter by, uh, that belonged to Bob Powers, the instructor. And he had attended a meeting up in Hagerstown and had a bunch of signatures on it of instructors with their instructor numbers. This would have been in 1942. Oh, okay, well, I'll just show you the dollar bill. I'll just talk you through this. 
Uh, now the computer can't see this, but okay. there's a dollar bill. And it even is labeled short snorter. And there's all the names. And I've gone through and tried to learn up some of the names. I found this guy. He was an instructor down in Maryland. Uh, these guys were all around. But this one down here really caught my attention. This is Dick Wheelis. And it's got his, his number there. And I thought, Wheelis, you know, that uh, there was, there was an uh, Air Force base in uh, Algeria named Wheelis Air Force Right. And I thought, geez, I wonder if that could have anything to do with him. So anyway, I googled Dick Wheelis and up came this. That helmet and goggles are just like the one that uh, Bob Powers has yep. me for the museum. So that's Dick Wheelis. And here you Google a little more, and here you have uh, the DFC, Distinguished Flying Cross, presented posthumously to uh, Lieutenant Richard Wheelis. So he instructed here. He instructed in here in 1942, either here or maybe Hagerstown. I'm not sure that he was here, but he, the dollar bill, I understand, was signed at a meeting at Hagerstown. Dick Wheelis in 1936 was a freshman in high school. In 1942, six years later, he was instructing people in how to fly. In 1944, he was uh, a first lieutenant flying C-46s out of Iran, World War II, giving instruction. And they took off the airplane controlled seas and they were trying to make it back to base or get it corrected and they were on the on the radio talking with maintenance and flying and fighting with the airplane they never made it back he was given the DFC for his attempt to get the word as to what happened and then they could find out to, to round this out yeah so I always ask uh, uh, people uh, what is and, and this might be a hard question for you uh, Bart What's the strangest plane you ever saw land here at uh, You know, Martinsburg? I don't even know what the strangest plane was because I, I never was able to identify it. But it was on short final years ago when I was first coming out here. And I drove right under it as it was getting ready to land. And it was a very long-winged single engine. Uh, and I have no idea what it was. It was it was a it was almost a glider with an engine. Uh -huh. And what 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 year was it? Oh, this would have been in the 80s. Okay. And I've never I've never been able to figure out what it was. Uh, oh, that's uh, intriguing. But it, it just did a touch and go, and and it, it had a very sinister look to it. Uh, uh, <laughs> and it was very quiet too, because uh -huh. I did, I was I stopped to watch it go by. And it was almost silent. Uh, so some sort of experimental glider, spy, something, probably. We see a, a good amount of planes that come from Andrews here. I've noticed. I've yeah. noticed. I think it's technically Air Force Two yeah. does you know yeah. practice out here a, right. a good deal. Yeah. Yes, they're here very often. I just, I. I'm getting stuff piled up that I've got to get at uh, and tell stories. There's our, our uh, flying tiger from Martinsburg over there.
which... Uh, See the photograph there to the left of the flags? Oh, yes, yeah. He was a flying tiger. He, he was in the Army, uh, left the Army to go with Chenault over into in China. He was on the first boat going over and uh, uh, flew P-40s, and he was killed during training in the P-40. I mean, he was a, he was, in, he was doing a test hop, and it disintegrated with him. Uh, the next time you come over, I've got a whole video on him and his family. I just want to thank you for uh, giving me, this is, I, I, I'm so privileged to, um, you give, give me this time, Bart. Um, uh, let's see, a fi final question I always ask the pilots is, um, put you on the spot, would you rate Martinsburg as flyover country, good for a fuel stop, or a destination? Oh, destination, by all means. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, it's a wonderful airport. We've got a wonderful history. Uh, but there's history all surrounding the whole area. You know, you've got Harper's Ferry, you've got Antietam, you have CNO Canal. I mean, Harper, this is a good place to come to. I, I would agree with you a thousand percent. Yeah, yeah that, that's why I figured this would be my first starter field in this series. Yeah. But, um, Thank you, Barb. Boy, I, you, you, every time I talk to you, I learn stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm very blessed. Uh, th yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, enjoyed it. Do it again. And this has been Airfields of Dreams. I hope you enjoy it. And uh, stand by for next week. I think we'll do either Hummel W75 or maybe uh, Winchester OKV. And that'll be for next week. Uh, any comments, uh, please send them to me at Pyrep at airfieldsofdreams.com and uh, hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you.